National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. The Church in France has long been called the eldest daughter of the Church. But today, there are challenges and crises for French Catholics in seemingly all directions. But there are also signs of hope and promise. This week on Register Radio, we talk to Register Senior Editor Jonathan Liedel about his recent trip to France. And then, as the nation marks the anniversary of Roe v. Wade and the pro-life movement marches in Washington, D.C. and around the country, we're joined by Register Correspondent Loretta Brown with an update on pro-life news as we all look ahead at the Supreme Court's decision on Dobbs v. Jackson. Hello, I'm Matthew Bunsen, Executive Editor and Washington Bureau Chief for EWTN News. My co-host for Register Radio, Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the Register, is off this week. Well, France is a nation of saints. Start rattling off some of the greatest of the French saints, and it's a very long list, from King Louis IX to Jean Jean d'Arc, or Joan of Arc, to Saint-Denis, to Saint Vincent de Paul, to Saint Genevieve, to Saint Francis Xavier. And yet, this is also a country that is a nation of the wars of religion, the horrors of the French Revolution and Napoleon, the imposition of laïcité, and now the rise of militant relativism. What is the current condition of the church in France, and uh, where is it headed? To talk about all of that, I'm joined by Jonathan Liedel, newly christened senior editor for the National Catholic Register, who spent several weeks in France and has much to say about the topic. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for having me, Matthew. Well, first, congratulations on uh, joining the Register as a senior editor. I know you've had a a connection with EWTN over the years, but I'm, I'm so glad that you're with us. Yeah, no, it's, I like, I don't, christening is an interesting way of putting it, how you said in the title, but, but it is kind of making, I think, maybe formal, just this ongoing relationship uh, I've had with EWTN and the Register, so very grateful for the, the opportunity to contribute uh, in a more formal way. Yeah, and I'm really looking forward to working with you over the next uh, years and hopefully decades, but uh, sort of before you... even, maybe. Possibly, yeah, eternity, <laughs> uh, or at least it'll seem like one. Uh, as we uh, move forward, though, uh, with the register, you uh, really took a, a moment in time, and you did something I know that uh, you were looking forward to doing, and that was to spend some time in France. Why go to France, and where are we right now? What it's like to be a Catholic in France today? Yeah, well, I think France, uh, for me, has always been uh, sort of a place of fascination. Um, A lot of the the people, uh, the saints, the philosophers, the theologians who had a big influence on me uh, are French. So, you know, you listed off that long litany of saints, and the, the one that I always include is Therese of Lisieux. Um, who, who's had a great great impact on me and my spiritual life. And then I think of philosophers like Blaise Pascal, uh, Maurice Blondel, Gabriel Marcel, uh, and theologians, uh, Henri de Lubac, Jean Danielou. Um, yeah, and really other just great Catholics who've been produced by this amazing uh, Catholic country and culture uh, who have also kind of shaped my imagination and my heart. So I wanted to go for a long time. Uh, and it, it really, you know, it was technically a holiday, right? Like I was not on the clock, uh, so right. I did some touristy things. I, I went up the Eiffel Tower. Uh, I went to the D-Day beaches in Normandy. Uh, so definitely did things like that. But uh, you know, I couldn't help myself uh, by by just kind of uh, asking the question to those I met. 
what's it like being being Catholic in France today? And so, yeah, I had a great some great opportunities to do that. Uh, I think as I've been telling people. The greatest part about the trip, the greatest blessing, um, it wasn't necessarily the, the beautiful cathedrals I saw or the great crepes I ate or, or anything like that, but it was really the people I met. I was really fortunate to get connected with a wide variety of Catholics in France. Uh, and, you know, it struck me, uh, I think, in a number of ways how similar and different uh, the situation in France is uh, to, to perhaps in the U.S. and the Catholic experience in the U.S. It's similar um, because a lot of the forces that, that, that affect us here in the U.S., whether we're talking about secularism, relativism, the sexual revolution, all kinds of things like that, uh, have definitely taken a toll and are continuing to take a toll on life in France. But there are also some kind of fascinating differences um, that, that I picked up on. And I have to caveat, caveat it all by saying, you know, I'm no expert on France and I was there for two weeks. So definitely, you know, that, that doesn't equal a doctoral dissertation. But I think some things that stuck out to me, um, you know, is that the, the, the Catholic population in France the active population is actually a lot smaller than it is in the U.S. It's something like only only five percent of uh, French people, for instance, go to mass every Sunday. So that's only ten percent of those who who would identify in some way as Catholic. In the U.S., I think it's something like maybe twenty-five percent of self-identified Catholics go to mass every Sunday. So f they're they're further along uh, that path towards secularization, but. Maybe because of that, that kind of um, smaller church, uh, you know, it almost reminded me of uh, Ratzinger speaking about the smaller, purer church. Um, because it was smaller, uh, there, there are some interesting characteristics of it that we don't see here in the U.S. So one, one big thing, I actually got connected over there with the guys who helped promote and translate Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option. So I had dinner with them one night. Mm -hmm. And they made the point uh, that this book, The Benedict Option, which sort of, it kind of encourages Christians to maybe not put all their, their eggs in the basket of the culture war and trying to shape politics and, and instead encourages people to focus on those little communities, whether it's the parish or the, the Catholic school or the family, um, that they, they say it's caught on uh, in France in a way that maybe it hasn't in, in the U.S. There's there's a great interest in thinking about how do we live as a little Catholic community in the midst of this big secular country. Um, so that was one thing I noticed. Uh, maybe another thing to mention quick is, uh, you know, in the U.S., maybe it's just because I spend too much time on Catholic Twitter. But it seems like we have lots of different camps within the Catholic Church in America, and we like to argue with each other. And it seems like we don't like each other a lot, like it can become very um, antagonistic and bitter. And again, maybe because the, the Catholic Church is such a remnant in France, I, I found people who were you know, similar to the different camps here. So I found some of the people I hung out with were SSPX people, but some of them were also part of uh, a cafe called Les Dorothy, named after Dorothy Day, who were more, we might say, uh, left cath. Right, and social so kind justice. Of the whole spectrum, yeah, the whole spectrum, but the crazy thing was that they all knew each other and they all got along with each other, even if they disagreed. Uh, and so, I don't know, in the U.S., I, I just find that's not been my experience, that maybe someone sort of, if you will, on one end of the liturgical, theological spectrum is good friends with 
uh, someone who's on on the opposite. So those is are just there interesting. A, still, a strong sense uh, among Catholics of all stripes that you're describing of of that awareness of the historicity of uh, just the sheer antiquity of Christianity in France. Yeah, I so a lot of the people I talk to are kind of my peers, so in that twenty to thirty year old age range, and I think. Uh, they, uh, you know, there were different perspectives on this. I think uh, maybe one segment I talked to identified uh, to a very significant degree with, as you said at the beginning of the broadcast, Francis' status as the eldest daughter of the church and a nation that was really founded by saints. Uh, and, you know, some of, the, some of the guys I talked to were big fans of the monarchy and they really, they talked about a way in which the French monarchy was was sort of this mystical fusion between heaven and earth, and and uh, you know the revolution kind of cut all that asunder. And so, yeah, there needs to be maybe not the reestablishment of of the Bourbon king, but um, definitely leaning back into uh, France's heritage and the Catholic heritage. And a fascinating thing: there are even a lot of atheists or agnostics who, who don't believe in God or aren't members of the Catholic Church who, who also look to Francis' uh, kind of Catholic heritage as really um, uh, a part of it, that something that can't be detached from France going forward. Uh, you know, and other people I talked to were maybe more, they, they certainly were appreciative of uh, Francis' Catholic history, but also were very um, sort of keen, if you will, on not not sort of just falling into an approach that sorts of sort of tries to retrieve, uh, you know, the way things were done in the past. So definitely some variety uh, on that topic as well. Um, but yeah, you very mentioned interesting that uh, you encountered uh, supporters of the traditional Latin Mass, especially in Lyon. Uh, but you made an important point that uh, we hear quite a bit uh, about France, and that is a that uh, the followers of traditional Latin Mass tend to be much more energized. But also, and this is the key, much more young. Yeah, and this was something actually uh, pointed out by my friends who weren't weren't even part of the traditional movement. Um, so, uh, some friends associated with the movement Communion and Liberation. So Italians who who happen to be living in France, and they might not, uh, you know, uh, be drawn to the the traditional liturgy in the same way um, as those who were. But they commented on how they were impressed that these were people who were willing to. To sort of go public and, and stand up for the faith in different ways uh, in France, and uh, yeah, my my experience with um, sort of sort of people who are part of the traditional Latin Mass community in France and in Lyon in particular was that it almost felt uh, <laughs> it's certainly the extraordinary form, but it almost felt ordinary, more ordinary uh, than uh, than perhaps. Um, traditionalist communities in the U.S. sometimes feel. Uh, like, just one thing to point this out, I went to uh, a traditional Latin Mass at St. George in Lyon, and it was 90% plus young people, people in their 20s, people in their 30s. Uh, but something that struck me is that a lot of people were wearing jeans. And, you know, I certainly think we should wear our Sunday best when we go to Sunday Mass. Um, but there was almost something, uh, in a way, refreshing about seeing people at the traditional Latin Mass and wearing jeans because sometimes the concern in the U.S. is, is that, um, you know, there can kind of be uh, perhaps an attachment, um, you know, like the idea that we have to do things like they were done in the 1950s, like we have to right. go back in time to kind of save the church. And so in yeah. France, I saw people who, who loved, 
you know, the mass of the ages, the mass of the saints who loved uh, that liturgy and how it allowed them to worship God. Um, but we're very much um, part of the world today and, and very much uh, concerned with, with kind of cooperating with the Holy Spirit of the Church uh, as we navigate these trying times. And a genuine love for the Eucharist. Well, well Jonathan, Absolutely. I really appreciate uh, your perspective on all of this. Uh, I'm assuming you're going to be writing about this. Yeah, I hope so. I got to figure out uh, how to how to turn it into some some digestible <laughs> little articles, <laughs> but but that's the hope. All right. Well, once again, uh, Jonathan Leedle, senior editor for the National Catholic Register, welcome aboard. Uh, great insights on France, and I look forward to having further conversations with you. All right. Merci, Matthew. My French is not very good. That's all I got. Très bien. Well, when we come back, I'm joined by Loretta Brown, a correspondent for The Register. We're going to be taking a look at the pro-life movement on this weekend of the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. This is Register Radio. More when we return. Pursue what matters most in 2022. Life, liberty, truth. From the Capitol to the classroom, from the pulpit to the pew, EWTN's National Catholic Register delivers in-depth news, analysis, and commentary through the lens of the Catholic faith. With so much at stake in our country, there's never been a more important time to read the Register. And with award-winning Catholic journalism that goes beyond what you'll find from any secular news service, you'll get the real story behind the events that unfold over the course of the year. Try the Register for free today and get it delivered to your home, office, or parish. Get six free issues today online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code RADIO. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back to Register Radio. I'm Matthew Bunsen, uh, not joined this weekend by my co-host Jeanette DeMello, who's off. But on this anniversary weekend of Roe v. Wade, this is an opportunity to mark the catastrophic loss of millions of lives claimed by abortion, as well as the wider impact of the culture of death, not just in America, but around the world. It also raises important questions about the pro-life cause and where we are as a nation. To assess this moment, I'm joined by Loretta Brown, registered staff writer based here, as I am, in Washington, D.C. Loretta, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So this is uh, always uh, one of those important weekends, uh, not just for Catholics, but for all people of uh, goodwill, people of conscience, and people who are really concerned about uh, the state of a nation that uh, has permitted the deaths of millions of unborn children. Give us a, a quick assessment in your view of here we are on this anniversary. We've just had the March for Life. Where are we as a pro-life movement? I think we're in a really unique place in terms of there's a lot of optimism and excitement at this point, because while it's true that, you know, this was the 49th gathering on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, and it just feels like pro-life advocates have been speaking out on this for so long, we do seem to be on the verge of something with this, this case out of Mississippi, the 15-week abortion ban um, that, you know, the Supreme Court justice has actually signaled last month that they were going to revisit some of this. Um, so there's a lot of optimism in that regard. I've spoken to a lot of lawyers 
who are pretty convinced that if the Supreme Court doesn't completely overturn Roe versus Wade in June, they will at least you know, go in and significantly change things about it um, and, and kind of allow for more um, actions on the part of the states to limit abortion. And there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, many people have brought up Chief Justice uh, Roberts actually pointed out that the U.S. is one of a, a handful of countries that even allows abortion past 20 weeks. Um, so it was interesting that he raised that point in oral arguments in December to just say, you know, we, we're kind of out of step um, with international law here. And that's a point that's been raised a lot in the past. But for him to to highlight that and to, to realize that and then some of the other justices talking about, you know, really returning this to the states by overturning Roe is, you know, not that extreme of a step in some ways. Um, so there's there's just there was a lot of optimism after those oral arguments. There seems to have been something of a, I wouldn't describe it as a sea change, but uh, there has been, it, it seems to me, definite movement uh, within the American electorate and the American people uh, regarding abortion. A new Knights of Columbus Marist poll that was released uh, on January 20th found that 71% of Americans actually support legal limits on abortion. Uh, it found that a majority of Americans oppose taxpayer funding of abortion. 81% of Americans believe laws that can protect both the mother and the unborn child uh, should be in place. So those are pretty striking numbers and, and falling well without, you know, outside of the margin of error that one would expect for a poll like those. Yeah, I think there's after seeing those those polling numbers, um, you know, in regards to a host of these abortion issues, I think pro-life advocates can really, um, you know, have a lot of, of hope about where the American electorate is on this. And even just, you know, some of the recent things like the, the Biden administration lifted rules on, um, you know, the abortion pill and they're allowing for it to be taken at home. Um, and 63 percent of Americans are opposed to that, according to this poll. So, you know, really some of these these steps on abortion, the um, American electorate <laughs> is saying, you know, wait a minute, that's that's pretty far. That's kind of extreme. And and also on the on Roe versus Wade, um, over 60 percent of Americans, um, you know, rejected Roe versus Wade in that poll, saying either that abortion should be illegal or 44 percent said that it should be left up to the states. Um, so that that was pretty significant. That jumped out at me. Yeah, because that's precisely uh, what the some of the working assumptions are uh, relating to where the justices seem to be tipping their hand uh, that this is going to go back to the states. Well, exactly, and I think that's that's something that maybe some people don't understand because when you hear oh we're we're going to overturn Roe versus Wade, they just think oh abortion banned everywhere. But that's <laughs> not what overturning Roe versus Wade would mean. It would mean that each state would have its own abortion laws in place, um, which, you know, something Justice Kavanaugh noted was that that would actually be, you know, the more American way to do things, that would be the more reasonable way to go about it at this point, given how dramatically different, um, you know, the the actions on abortion that states want to take are, you know, if you compare like New York to Ohio um, in, in the type of legislation that, um, you know, that the people in those states want. <laughs> Yeah, and let's also not uh, underestimate the power of the uh, what I always refer to as big abortion, uh, the abortion lobby in the United States. So you just had a, a fascinating uh, blog post that I really encourage everyone to read about White House appointees who used to work for Planned Parenthood. I mean, Planned Parenthood seems to be embedded all over the current Biden administration. 
Yeah, certainly. And it was something that even surprised me. I just, I saw, you know, there was, there was a recent appointee who had, had just come from Planned Parenthood and then going back and looking for further even at it, um, you know, the, the president of Planned Parenthood, Alexis McGill Johnson had even bragged at one point as, you know, the Biden administration was was taking power, that she was going to really try to place um, people it, within the, the government to to advance the abortion cause. And just looking at, at some of these appointees, I mean, you know, one of them, uh, Natalie Reyes, she um, she had really, according to Planned Parenthood, you know, expanded their reach in Latino communities and um, just done a ton of work with them. There were others on, on Planned Parenthood's board that were making decisions about, um, you know, who gets to work in, in a White House fellowship. Um, and it was just uh, really eye-opening to see that, yeah, the abortion lobby um, has has kind of a hold in, in some of these places in, in the government. Yeah, you probably document uh, the, the very person you're talking about, Jenny Rosenthal, uh, who's appointed to the President's Commission on the White House Fellows. Uh, and in 2019, she praised uh, Johnson as a, as a renowned social justice leader, lifelong political organizer, and a tireless advocate for reproductive rights, which, of course, is code language. Uh, so, I mean, this is um, a fairly impressive gallery of pro-abortion people who are making very important policy decisions, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, certainly. And one of the other individuals I highlighted was she was the senior advisor um, on diversity at OPM to the, to the OPM director on um, the Office of Personal Management. And she is now <laughs> the president of NARAL. And NARAL is, you know, one of the biggest abortion advocacy organizations in the U.S. They work hand in hand with Planned Parenthood. Um, so that was really another significant one for me. Like, wow, the, the head of the abortion, big abortion advocacy group used to be, you know, doing a lot of advising at OPM. So, Yeah, and another area I know that you've, you track uh, in the abortion field uh, is also the, the connection that it has, the important connection it has to medical conscience rights and religious liberty. And if we go back to that uh, Knights of Columbus Marist poll, we can see that the 63% of them Americans oppose new federal rules that allow sending prescription drugs for medication uh, abortions through the mail instead of having women get them in person. Uh, three quarters say doctors, nurses, or other healthcare professionals who have religious objections to abortion should not be forced to perform them. 54% believe organizations who have religious objections to abortion should not be legally required to provide insurance coverage. That's a tough sell when you have so many members of Planned Parenthood and the abortion movement. Uh, so clearly important in the Biden administration in making, again, these policy decisions. Yeah, certainly. And I think it's just one of those areas where, you know, especially with, you know, President Biden's reversal on the Hyde Amendment and um, the moves that, that the administration has made on that, you know, not including the Hyde Amendment in the budget and such, um, it's it's really concerning because you, you see the numbers you just read off. And, and even, I think, just talking to people about, well, okay, even if you're pro-abortion, you wouldn't want to force someone who disagrees with abortion to, to pay for abortions <laughs> um, and, or force someone who objects to perform one, you know, things like that in the, in the um, healthcare field. And um, so, yeah, you see these majorities of Americans saying, yeah, definitely, like there should be conscience rights here. And 
unfortunately, um, you know, this, the steps that the Biden administration has taken um, seem to to not really align with that and to, to disregard that. And it's it's even striking. I mean, President Biden years back in 1994 wrote a letter <laughs> saying, um, you know, those who object to abortions should not be compelled to pay for them. So he understood that back in 1994, um, you know, but then somewhere in between the he decided to to shift on the Hyde Amendment and say, ah, actually, you know, taxpayer funds should go to this. Um, and he didn't really address that that huge conscience issue there. So, yeah, I think certainly the majority of Americans don't don't align with that. Well, and we see uh, that uh, young Catholics especially are really energized uh, on this issue. But at the same time, you've done some important reporting on the Students for Life that released a report featuring Catholic schools with ties to Planned Parenthood that may not come as a surprise to a lot of people, but it was somewhat eye-raising the degree to which Planned Parenthood again has embedded itself, not just in the Biden administration, but in some cases in Catholic schools. Yeah, certainly. So there were a handful of Catholic schools that um, you know, linked to Planned Parenthood as a resource or partnered with Planned Parenthood in, you know, events at, at their career centers um, or listed it as an internship idea. And it was discouraging, certainly, to see that sort of, um, you know, involvement from Catholic schools. I will say in that report, though, it was it was interesting. Initially, there were many, many Catholic schools that were had kind of some of these links, these ties. Um, I think it was 22 Catholic schools, and the number went down to six after the, um, you know, Students for Life reached out, and you know, gradually these schools realized, oh, uh, well, we don't, we don't want this link, we don't want this partnership, so they they removed those mentions to Planned Parenthood. Um, many of them did, which is which is the heartening element of that. Um, but yeah, it certainly is concerning that that any Catholic or Christian school would associate with with Planned Parenthood. Right. Well, very briefly, what are you working on right now? Yeah, certainly. So at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at, you know, women getting abortions in America and, um, you know, what what their commonalities are, what what some of their needs are. You know, so it's interesting. The pro-life movement has really risen and, and seen, you know, a majority of these women are poor. Um, they're unmarried. They don't have a support system. So I talked to some, some of these pro-life helplines about the, the common problems that these women are dealing with and how they've worked to address them. And it, it really was quite quite inspiring to look into that because, you know, I think the pro-life movement is really rising to, to meet these needs, mm-hmm. to say, okay, we can't just ban abortion. We also want to help these women and help these babies and really empower them to thrive. Well, I look forward to reading your report, Loretta. Loretta Brown, staff writer for the uh, National Catholic Register here in Washington, D.C. Always uh, a pleasure to talk with you, and, and good luck on your continued reporting. Thank you. Well, that brings an end uh, to this week's episode of Register Radio. I'm Matthew Bunsen. Uh, Jeanette DeMello was off this week, but remember, for more news, analysis, and commentary, check out the National Catholic Register online at ncregister.com. Thanks so much for joining me this week uh, here on EWTN. For Jeanette DeMello and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Matthew Bunsen. Please, until next week, take care, God bless, and keep praying and fighting for the unborn.